Thanks to Delupa for sponsoring this season of Compounders. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation by allowing analysts to spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. As someone who spends a lot of time updating models with data that some of the other major platforms, such as Bloomberg and Capital IQ, don't capture, I have seen firsthand how much time Delupa can save professional investors. Specifically, Delupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MDNAs, and investor presentations. Their data sheets also include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. More bulge bracket banks and top-tier investment managers are trusting Delupa for assistance in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping models up to date. Please visit www.delupa.com compounders to learn more about how Delupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Matt Russell, the CEO of Colossus. For anyone who is not familiar with the platform, Colossus is the home for a number of excellent podcasts, including Invest Like the Best, Founders, the Art of Investing, and Business Breakdowns. Given my personal experience with podcasts, I was really looking forward to learning from Matt about the economics of podcasting as a business, where the idea for Colossus came from, how Matt and his partners decide which new podcast to add to the platform, where we are in the maturation of the ad market for podcasts, and best practices in partnering with advertisers. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Matt Russell of Colossus. I'd love to start with what you've learned about the economics of the podcast business. I assume there are power laws involved when it comes to who makes money from pods, but I could be wrong. What's your understanding of that? Yes. I think if we just look at it in direct monetization terms, advertising-based monetization of podcasts, there is definitely a power law to this. But what I would say is it's a very interesting business because it's extremely low cost to produce. For us, we can produce episodes somewhere between $200 to $500, depending on how much research we're putting into it. And then the advertising can be multiples of that to where we're talking about 95% plus margins on just the the release of a podcast. So there is definitely, in terms of direct monetization, a power law case there. But what's interesting is I think it's oftentimes simplified as mass market podcasts who are direct consumer advertising based. And I think that's where things can get lost, where if you're simply talking in those terms, you're talking about $25 per thousand listeners. Where we want to target more is not just your audience size, but exactly who is in your audience. And if they're the right people, the decision makers you know, within their organizations, there's a lot more purchasing power 
for that audience. And that opens up things to a much more interesting set of advertisers who are going to talk about different rates than what you typically see referenced in in most podcast uh, reports and you know strategy discussions. So I think, yes, power law for sure. Um, but there's some nuance to it when it comes to um, uh, how you're how you're operating. So we get questions all the time about like who's your listener base and how many downloads and you know I've got these anecdotes about really you know kind of like a high power listening base because it's you know whatever compounders is a little bit of a niche niche focus. How, what are best practices in from your perspective in terms of tracking and assessing the listener base so that you can have like a very um, data driven conversation with the potential advertiser? Yeah, so it's the challenge with podcasting is the platforms do not provide you with much data. And I think that's going to get better over time. It seems like Spotify is particularly leaning into this, but you have to come up with this on your own. And that's what makes it much different than the newsletter medium, which is very in vogue right now and is much easier to capture that data. So what can you do to offset it? There's a few different things. One, we have a large percentage of our audience that ends up on our website looking for transcripts or associated research. That's an easy way for us to collect information and data. We put in a registration wall. We now have a lot of information on the people that are tapping into our transcripts. The other thing is our newsletter. So we can use that, which is you know not the equivalent size of our audience, but it's a healthy size. Um, and we can do surveys through that newsletter or a variety of other things where we're pushing that on to people. So it's very much a, an exercise of collecting it on a frequent basis. And then using that in addition to whatever tools the podcast players or whatever data the podcast players will provide you with uh, in order to tell the story. And so we know that obviously someone like Joe Rogan can make a lot of money from having a podcast. But I think there's a lot of amateur podcasts out there like that who you know want this to be a business, right? Like a like a, like as opposed to a kind of a hobby. Do you have any sense of the scale required for this to be a real business? business as opposed to something that, you know, is a brand builder or, you know, kind of complements something else you're doing. Yeah. If I were to use, again, going back to the simple model of your targeting consumers, let's use just industry norms, you're going to get about $25 per thousand listeners for advertising. So what you'll typically hear as a, a key threshold for podcasts to be relevant to advertisers is 10,000 listeners. Uh, and that's either over a seven-day or 30-day period, but let's let's say over a 30-day period just for simplicity's sake. So if you have 10,000 listeners, you're going to get paid $250 per ad slot. Let's say you do four ads in your podcast. You're looking at something like $1,000 an episode. If you do that weekly, $50,000 a year, there's obviously going to be costs associated with it. That's just at least a framing for where you can start to step up. And that $25 CPM, I think, you know, fit, stays fairly consistent until you're into the probably seven-figure territory, then it might start to tail off. But that's a very, very simple framework for doing it. Now, there's another way to approach this, which is we're not going to go towards the standard consumer products. We're going to have a niche like what you're doing uh, with compounders. We know that investors are listening. We know investor tools cost a certain amount. We know we have these investors. And some of the people that might want to sponsor the show are actually in our audience. And they're going to be the natural buyers of adventory for the show. And that's where we've ended up sourcing a lot of our 
sponsors is actually because they're listeners of the show. They realize who else listens to the show and they want to be associated with that. So I think that's where you can start to break away from the $25 norm um, and get into something that's that's significantly bigger and and better for both sides. I think we can both agree that the podcast medium is still in its infancy in terms of a really strong ad medium that can be tracked and traced and measured. And I, you know, I also know that you're one of the hosts of business breakdowns. So you like to study business models. Are there any historical analogs to compare the current podcast business model to? Well, I think there are, and I want to very much break away from whatever those analogs are, because I think right now, if you look at what has happened, content has become a commodity. And it's great for the advertisers to view it that way. It's great for media agencies to view it that way. It's great for the aggregators that distribute the content oftentimes to view it that way. It's bad for people creating content. So you do not want to just be viewed as a commodity and your cost, you know, for whatever you're selling your advertising for can be directly compared to what Joe Rogan's cost could be or anybody else. Um, that is not the business that you want to be in for obvious reasons when you study those industry structures. So how do you separate yourself from that is the biggest question. That's where niching down into particular audience matters. Um, and I think that is what's most important to do, because then if you can move away from that, um, you start to look at this as, okay, it's low cost, doesn't require much overhead. And as I push things out, you know, I can monetize those with that huge scale where uh, I'm going to get significant margins to the extent that I grow the audience, and I don't have to have my cost base growing up uh, nearly as much. So that becomes a much more interesting business model if you can tap into that and differentiate yourself. And you mentioned the commoditization of content within the podcast realm. I mean, it's just there's so many pods to listen to. It's just it's impossible for everyone, and the start like the, the the startup costs are almost zero. Do you think? I mean, having it being, being associated with a platform that was kind of an early mover in this space. Do you think there's a big first mover advantage for a podcast in that no matter how good the art of investing guys are, it's going to be hard to replicate invest like the best success because of whatever the seven or eight years in between when they were both started? Yes. I mean, without a doubt, it's only gotten harder to launch podcasts and see them get traction. Um, so we've experienced that over the past three to four years with every sequential launch. We know it's a different environment. We know it's trickier. And that makes things challenging. It also makes things interesting because it's not an algorithm that you could just hack. So to me, I love that. It's not like, okay, we're going to change our thumbnail now and we're going to see our listenership go up or you know, we're going to use this particular tactic and we know that the algorithm is going to really control that. The algos, they have some control over who's listening to podcasts, but it's still a medium that is really challenged in terms of discoverability. Uh, and a lot of people complain about that, but I think what it means is if you are able to carve out a place, it's very sticky. And it's very hard to break in in terms of getting to that size. So you see a lot of people come and go. Um, and I think that makes things very, very interesting for us. Now, I think when you think about the benefits of a platform, there's a lot of questions about this. At the end of the day, every individual podcast needs to be able to stand alone and stand on its own as a valuable podcast that could operate individually 
It's only then when that's happened that the synergies or benefits from being on a platform together come into play uh, because each show then has its own power in terms of promoting the next show that might come out. But if those shows don't stand alone and, and you know, stand individually, you're not really <laughs> you're not going to be able to to do much benefit. And if anything, it could dilute the overall network um, from having something like that. I think it's a good time to get into the benefits of aggregating podcasts for maybe from an advertiser perspective or even from the cost perspective. Like what is what is the benefit of having, I don't know, seven podcasts on one platform as opposed to having seven individual podcasts across different platforms? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, we want to be viewed as a destination that people can go to, regardless of whether they're an investor or an executive or a student learning one particular niche or an entrepreneur. Uh, we want to be able to have shows for everyone in that business and investing community and different flavors of shows, interview style, teaching style, something that's very numbers driven, something that's more philosophically driven. Um, so a little bit of everything. And you've seen platforms that over time start to have some type of taste associated with them. So you can think about HBO or something like A24 more recently in movies. Uh, you think about their brands, you think about the content quality when something has that stamp of approval on it it automatically benefits just in terms of awareness. The person that's thinking about what they're going to watch next or listen to next, if they see that that stamp, it means something. It, it carries some weight. And I think what's interesting about that is that that brand value can be more and more powerful when you have individuals that are tied into it. So it's not just Patrick saying, okay, you know, my stamp of approval is on this. There's limitations to that in terms of how much Patrick can do. And I think there's uh, you know certain linear elements to how much brand value an individual can have. When you start to pair that with other people like David Senra, some of our other hosts, even the guests that are associated with the the shows, um, that all filters up into Colossus and gives it you know just a little bit different meaning and I think more powerful meaning as an umbrella. And if you can accrue more of that value up to the enterprise level, I think it gives you more power for new shows, but also for the existing shows them, themselves. So that's where I've really been focused on over the last three years is take what Patrick built on his own and, and leverage that and create things around him that can operate without him having to be involved 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst, to bring simplicity to the investment process. Delupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. And can you go to an advertiser and say, you know, invest like the best has X viewership, but we could give you the opportunity to advertise across these six or seven pods um, and create a larger relationship or a higher CPM relationship. Does that, does aggregating viewers across podcasts, is that a, have you found that to be a, a I guess a persuasive way of getting advertisers to be more involved and pay more? I would say it is not, the biggest benefit. It's not something where, oh, you need to have this because then it unlocks a completely new opportunity set. Now, there are definitely some advertisers who are interested in 
looking across the the shows, getting more of a blitz campaign out there where you're hearing them over and over and over again across the shows. Um, but it's not this um, golden ticket in terms of being able to do that. Now, you think about pulling these things together, you hit a certain level of scale. I have not found that to actually be all that beneficial, taking smaller shows, putting them together. Um, ultimately, most people that are interested in in advertising with shows come in with one specific show in mind, maybe two specific shows, uh, and then they'll open their mind up to other things. Um, but they they very much have a mindset of this is what I'm interested in sponsoring. And uh, that's what I'm most interested in hearing about. And then you talked a little bit about your costs per episode. Um, what are there any benefits to having a central editing and distribution side of the podcast as well that lowers the cost? Because I mean, if we're talking about a commodity, you want that you want to be the lowest cost producer in some ways. Did, are there scale advantages there, or is it like it's too hard to tell until you have I don't know a hundred on the platform? There are definitely scale advantages, 100%. Uh, being able to provide visibility to vendors, uh, and that can be on a whole host of different things. If they know you're going to come through with five weekly shows, that's going to get you certain economies of scale. Now, because it's such a small line item relative to what's potentially there on, on the revenue side of things, um, it doesn't move the needle that much but it's it's still beneficial nonetheless so yes that that plays into it uh for sure and as you i, I want to take a step back because i think it's important to set the stage of how the idea for colossus came about was it that patrick had this show and you you could attach shows around it to achieve more scale like what where did where did this you know where did the idea for the empire come from yeah i you can hear Patrick talk about it. He did an episode with us and it was very much a thing that he heard over and over and over again. You're silly not to build something, you know, off of what you've created with invest like the best. Uh, it was during COVID and he eventually said, you know, I have some extra time on my hands. He ended up founding two businesses, Colossus being one of them, positive sum, the venture fund being the other uh, during during that downturn. So I don't know what you were up to uh, in terms of taking advantage of of more free time, uh, he decided to 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 build two businesses, which I respect. Uh, and the idea was, yes, you have this audience, you have this really interesting magnet for ambitious people, creative people, people that are either at the upper echelons of business and investing today or making their way up. And you have a variety of different ways to tap into that, whether it be creating new shows, bringing them onto shows, building out more infrastructure, investing behind them. Um, so you could see where the feedback loop comes into play, particularly when you put those th two things together. Um, so that that was really the idea was let's build this destination where curious people want to go to learn more about these topics and in this universe. Uh, and that has been the mindset ever since. It's, you know, what else can we roll out? What other topics do we want to cover? who is interesting out there, which ways can we work with them? Uh, and that's really how it's worked ever since. And is there a positive flywheel here where the more those curious people come as listeners, the more likely you are to attract the best hosts that are just starting to think about uh, beginning a pod? Is that something that you think is, you know, kind of like can sustain be sustained over time? 
yes, 100 percent. There is an attraction to hosts that are either operating in the system today that you know many of them who would be interested in in joining. Um, there are also others that are up and coming that that reach out, but it goes well beyond that, which which I think is the most interesting part. Just by having the content and the discussion and the audience and knowing who's listening, there's a variety of different ways that people would want to work with us. And that's what we're really trying to figure out. It's forget the commodity media side of things, which is good, can pay the bills, but is kind of the small version of this. It's what could be much, much bigger beyond this. And it's, okay, there are certain people that want to be learning in public. There are certain people that want to be building in public. There are certain people that want to create something. And if we can provide a variety of different avenues for them to do that in the form of distribution, other forms of you know featuring, capital, labor, uh, you can understand where it can go from there, where that feedback loop is much, much, much more interesting and much bigger than just the podcast itself. It's all the things that are born out of the podcast um, that is still tricky to figure out in terms of how to ultimately take advantage of that the opportunity, but the opportunity is 100% there. And as you think about bringing a new podcast onto the platform, do you have to quote unquote own part of the podcast uh, to be on the platform or are there ways to make revenue share opportunities work? So what I would recommend to any platform is to own. Now, the rev share agreements certainly can be created such that there's an alignment of interest in the short term. But if you truly want compounding, which is the, is the topic of discussion on the show, you need to have some type of long-term alignment. And that doesn't happen without some type of shared ownership. So those are always tricky things to figure out that can stop things from actually going through, stop deals from happening. But I think if there's any platform out there that really wants to create something much bigger, it's it's solving that problem. And I don't think the problem has been solved. I think you look at you know, a, a big podcast platform that existed was Barstool. They had at one point, Pat McAfee, Caller Daddy, many others. Um, and they had the turning group behind them who are pretty savvy investors and understand you know, legal contracts and all that stuff. And you've seen they were still unable to keep a lot of that talent around. So what is the new mechanism for driving that alignment? And not in a way that is exploitive, right? You don't want to just capture somebody's individual brand um, and then you know hold on to that. And, and um, people don't want to give up equity in themselves. So what are alternative ways to do that? And I think that's like the most interesting thing that's going to happen over time is is figuring out that solution to not just individuals, but something bigger than them that you can invest behind. Um, and I think that 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 becomes very interesting. So it kind of goes both ways. You both want the platform to own part of the pods, but you also want the host to own part of the platform so that they feel like they have a reason to stick around as opposed to just like jumping from platform to platform. It could be part of this platform. It could be part of their own platform. I think sometimes there's an opportunity to create ambition within these people that are they have podcasting. What else can they build around them? And if they don't think about it just as one show that they're hosting, but it could be an entire either network or some type of other content to commerce play that sits under the umbrella, 
then that becomes much more interesting to them because they can think about it as, okay, now I have a partner who's investing behind me, uh, not just to build out the show, but to build out something more. They might have the infrastructure in place to really help me out. And that's when, yes, they're getting the benefits of distribution, um, but they're also potentially getting the benefits of of capital and infrastructure, which I think um, you know goes goes even further than that. And are there any other examples? I mean, you bring up the idea of creating other engines of revenue or profits. Are there examples in your mind of people who have done that through like starting with a podcast and then getting into, I guess, conferences is an obvious one, but something not so obvious. I, I don't think people are selling a lot of merch. I mean, is that, is that like that, that where it's like a business on its own? What else is out there? Yeah, I think there are definitely great examples of the the content to commerce playbook. There's basically two playbooks we would look at. You have the B2B media playbook, which it's not necessarily podcasts that are typically starting this. It's it's oftentimes newsletters, but you basically have these publications or forms of content that are very focused on decision makers in a particular niche. And you're going to be able to capture higher advertising rates on the back of that. But then as an extension, you want to do something like events as well, which is another big opportunity to capture potentially on both sides where it's sponsorships and ticketing. Uh, Then you're going to have something else along the lines of community or courses or something along those lines. Um, These are things that we haven't really tapped into. We obviously could go down those paths, but that is one playbook, I would say, just B2B media playbook. You're aiming at a very different customer base and you're targeting a niche, and you're able to monetize better than general mass media. The other would be content of commerce, where, again, I would just look at the Churning Group's portfolio. You have someone like Doug DeMuro, who takes his YouTube channel focusing on cars. He builds a business around a marketplace where he's going to be very involved in the content, um, but he's also getting in the mix in terms of running that marketplace, running the, the reviews on the cars that are featured on it, um, and that's just an interesting, very tangential business to what he's doing. And he's he's filling a particular niche. One of the most interesting ones is Kevin Espiritu at Epic Gardening, where he had a very popular gardening blog, gardening YouTube channel. And he actually, rather than building something from the ground up, started to acquire some of these businesses. So he first acquired you know, some of the... Um, the bed manufacturers or entered into a exclusive agreement. And then he purchased a massive seed producer, one of the biggest uh, in the US. And that's very interesting because you have this content creator, right? Kind of viewed in a different class who now has acquired one of the largest seed producers that's selling into the wholesalers like Home Depot, Lowe's. Um, and that's a really interesting business because let's say that seed company was spending X percentage of money on marketing. Okay, your marketing engine is now here. He's tied into that brand. Um, so how does that apply to someone like us? Okay, there's some you know obvious things that could you could just throw in there. Let's say, oh, a research marketplace, you know, where you have people on both sides of the equation and we're funneling people into that. Recruiting arms in the investment industry, you know, things that we could test out there. Um, but products where we know we could potentially be advertising those on our podcasts. They would relate to the people that we work um, or, or we're targeting in terms of our audience base um, and things that we think we could potentially build. Requires a little bit of different DNA, you know, in terms of building up those products to exist on their own. And you ultimately, if you're focused on content, can you just, you know, put a different hat on and focus on building something like that out? 
that's not easy. Um, but that's where where you could see things going um, as a as a alternative to just depending on advertising revenue. Yeah, I could see the kind of crossover between podcasting and I don't know, being, you know, being in a seed business, being like chat, like, yeah. So that's an interesting example of being successful. But I, I can see also how that's really hard. Yeah. So I think a lot about the operational expertise that comes into running one of these things. And what's interesting about Kevin is most of what you hear from creators is acquiring businesses or just partnering up with others that they've outsourced some of these, you know, entities too. You think about Mr. Beast with Beast Burger basically dependent on a lot of people that he didn't really have much association with. And then there's a downfall with Kevin. You know, it was acquiring an established family owned business, working closely with them, obviously working closely with, with churn in terms of the acquisition and the dollars coming in in order to fund something like that. Um, and then, you know, not necessarily getting in the way either, uh, understanding who can operate that business. Um, but I think it, it becomes very interesting and you start to see, okay, what are the limitations in terms of some of this? Because it's so much easier to create a lot of different things now with the technology that's out there. And distribution can actually be one of the bigger challenges with any of the products. So if you have that working backwards is an interesting alternative. So you've developed, you and your team have developed a very profitable platform that I assume has to throw off some cash, given that there's very little capital costs. What's in your brain in terms of the use of that capital? It sounds like you can provide that to some of your podcast partners on and to join the platform. But what else what else does a business like this do with the cash? Well, it's it's a great question because I don't view just building out a pure advertising-based business as a great reinvestment opportunity. I think, you know, where the capital should go is into things that we believe in with longer term, higher upside potential, and very much keeping our advertising partners happy, but understanding each incremental podcast is not delivering necessarily the same value. Um, and you can actually dilute yourself because each incremental thing that you, you start to introduce can actually be a drag and be worse performing. So I think it's a, it's a mindset of where else can these dollars go? Um, whether it be partnerships, acquisitions, different things, funding things, um, and that's really what we're thinking a lot about right now. Interesting. And so you mentioned the dilution aspect. M maybe talk a little bit about like how, why there might be diminishing returns. You know, once you have 10 podcasts, why the 11th one doesn't, isn't particular, might not be particularly helpful when it comes to growing the enterprise value of, of Colossus. Yeah, it's ultimately what is the goal. And I don't think we'll shy away if we have great concepts or great partners um, and we're all aligned with interest in releasing something new. I think we will do that. But we're not outright looking. You know, We're not having conversations trying to aggressively acquire, bring on more people. It's very opportunistic. And I think it's very much an understanding that there's a certain amount of time the team is lean and do the incremental dollars that are associated with whatever we're rolling out next, you know, get the same return as if we were to take those dollars and the labor that's attributed to that and invest into something different, bigger, um, and, uh, you know, more aligned with a longer term vision. So 
those are the things that we think about like any business would would think about um and i think you know you've seen it with a lot of content platforms where they get obsessed with this idea of you just got to feed the advertising demand so they yeah. just start to roll out more and more inventory and just just a matter to get that filled if there's demand i'm going to just release more inventory and i think that could be dangerous because as we've seen advertising is cyclical and you can get yourself caught where if you're just producing all this stuff you know, some of that starts to go away. Uh, you could be in a in, in very much a pickle versus some other businesses, which I think have different revenue characteristics in terms of stickiness and long term nature. Um, so I think it's it's you know at a certain stage it's worth thinking about. Okay, what else can we be doing from a commerce perspective? And you guys have put together quite a distinguished group of podcasts and hosts on the platform. What what are some of the common attributes or like what, how have you thought about selecting these people? What what do you see in them that might be common across the people you've decided to partner with? Well, I think David Center is a great example of clearly somebody who is so obsessed with what they're doing. And it is their mission to continue doing that with this ultimate fire. Um, and he's a great partner to work with because he is singularly focused on that podcast founders it is very tied into exactly what he wants to be doing patrick has a great concept about life's work um and i think ultimately we want people that are somewhat similar to that in terms of they're going to do this podcast whether or not they make money from it and it is not the sixth thing on their priority list that if they have a meeting that comes up, they're going to have to bump a recording or they're not going to be able to get out a weekly release. And after they do their first four or five episodes, they're not just tired of it. And they're like, uh, you know what? I don't want to be doing this anymore. I think there's a lot of excitement and there's a honeymoon phase with all this. But then it's a matter of, OK, you're going to hit some slogs. You're going to hit some downturns. You're going to have some times where it's you don't want to record. Um, we want the people that are just going to be doing it and are committed to it. Um, so I think that's a big piece of it. On top of just a real insatiable curiosity, all of the things that you would associate with people that are, you know, lifelong learners, they want to be teachers, they want to learn, and they're willing to do that in a public forum and a public setting. Um, so I think those are, are are key things that that play into it. Um, and I think it's almost easier to say what do we tend to avoid, um, and we just want to avoid someone who is not necessarily committed. Uh, they are doing this because it's a shiny object and mm -hmm. they are more than likely to just flame out, which is going to require a lot of time on our side. And we just want to make sure that if we're putting the time into it, we just get a, a mutually um, <laughs> respectable amount of time from their side. If I think about David Senra and his passion as a hurdle rate for adding another podcast, I don't think you'd ever add <laughs> another another partner but so assuming that there are some more slots available on the platform, maybe with diminishing returns at a certain point, what, you know, is it, do you need like a different niche, a different focus? Do they, can they be kind of overlapping and still be complementary? How do you think about, at least from a, from a focus or content perspective, the, the criteria associated with adding that incremental policy? Ultimately, from a business standpoint, what I would say is we would want a different niche. Now, we ourselves love content. We digest a lot of content. 
Am I going to tell you that that's going to pr- happen every time? No. I think you can make the case that Art of Investing has some similarities to some of our other shows. Sure. Uh, it is different. It is targeted at the classroom audience and people that are really trying to understand you know, certain people's careers, what has got them there. It's a different angle on what some of our other shows do, but it has a similar audience for sure. Um, so I think there's there's examples where if you squint, it's hard to tell the difference. Um, but that said, I think that if we think about this from a pure business standpoint, yes, rolling out into a, a different niche that's targeted and we think is a big opportunity would be much more logical for us to to do. I think about the overlap between the interest of an investor, someone who already listens to one of your pods. My guess is that sports and entertainment would be kind of obvious verticals. Is that... Am I on? Am I spot on there in terms of like if you were to go not into like a different like niche within finance, but in terms of like a separate vertical, are those two that would be kind of on the radar? So what I would say about those verticals is that they are not great from a dollars and cents standpoint. They are one very competitive markets, so that's one thing. Two, most of the products that you would be advertising for are low cost. In nature. So you're not necessarily going to see the same type of rates. Um, it's not really a fruitful end market in that regard. And we take a show like Making Media, which covers our business uh, internally. And, it, and it's one that we've started doing this year. We end up talking to a lot of people in entertainment, in films, in sports, um, across big media companies. And the the roster of guests is very impressive. Uh, but the potential advertiser base is much less impressive because you just don't have that same type of end market for them to be advertising to. So that would be the counter to why that wouldn't necessarily be something we would lean more into. Um, obviously, we find it interesting. And yes, there's definitely overlap, um, but it's not as clean of a fit as what we're doing uh, from just pure business and investing. And do you think... And my partner, Bobby, and I have had a lot of conversations about being brand consistent and the risk of, you know, you know, changing the your, the structure of your podcasts and to make maintaining some kind of, you know, being on brand all the time. How have you thought about venturing into a niche that was like outside of investing, but also had the characteristics of more of a B2B market that that would be, um, you know, kind of the same level of profitability? Yes, I think your point on brand value and and maintaining a brand image is really important to us. So we have to think about that stuff all the time. There's a lot of dollars out there that we could accept, which we wouldn't be too proud of, and we we don't accept those dollars, and you know we we forego those opportunities. Um, but I think you know it ultimately comes down to the quality of the content that we're producing, and do we feel comfortable and proud of it? You know, is it something that we would put all of our individual names behind. Uh, and as long as we're doing that, we're comfortable with it. Um, you know, other big end markets, I think if you look at a company like Industry Dive and just pull up who they're targeting, it's, you know, waste management executives or uh, executives in, in the utilities where the contract size when they're picking a vendor is six figures. Um, so you need to know that you're getting those people in the audience when you're when you're talking about whatever you're talking about that that crowd is going to want to listen in um 
I don't think those two categories would be ones that we would lean into, but it just gives you an example of other niches uh, and industries across business that would fit the characteristics of having big ad markets. And you mentioned that response being selective about the partners you work with and the ad dollars that you are willing to, to, to accept. So I have this bias towards only working with sponsors whose products I've used. And like, I know Patrick has a relationship with Tegas and the art investing guys are close to their sponsors as well. What's been your general approach as it relates to kind of the authenticity associated with the advertisements? It's big. Um, And it makes things more challenging in terms of operating a business. I'll be honest. There are some times where I say to myself, hmm, you know, could I just do this ad read and collect and not feel bad about it? But we're trying to play the long game and we have great examples of it all the time. You know, I've done deals where I thought, yeah, this is it meets the criteria. And then I have Patrick saying, no, I I don't want to do this one. And David Senra, where I'll run everything by him and he will either sample it, test it out and make sure he's comfortable with it. Uh, We've had times recently where he's like, Matt, we can't do it. It's probably a really interesting company, but I would never use that service. And I say, hey. I respect that. I am 100% good with it. So yes, I think um, that is very, very important to us. We ultimately go out to a lot of our vendors that we've used for extended periods of time and and say, listen, like we don't work with many people. We would potentially love to work with you if you were interested. Uh, and that's a natural sourcing ground because it's a much easier way to, to sell. Um, but that said, I, I don't hold it against people that accept those dollars elsewhere. Because I do think at the end of the day, we're in a a market where the advertising opportunity is much bigger than the consumer subscription opportunity. So I don't necessarily um, look unfavorably on those that are advertising other products. It's uh, don't hate the player, hate the game. And I'll give you guys some credit for, I think, being a little more innovative in terms of the way you present um, your sponsors. For example, um, you know, I, I even did one with Patrick where he interviewed me about Tegas, which is a product that I've used. Um, and so that's very different from just simple ad read. So I'm interested in what do you think are the best practices when it comes to, you know, get, not selling the product per se, but for highlighting the value of the product as opposed to just a simple ad read? Yeah, I think that it comes down to if you really use something, talk about how you use it, why you use it, and the value that it provides. And that doesn't just happen necessarily in the podcast channel. Maybe it happens in a newsletter or via social media or other places. And you know there are ways to negotiate contracts where potentially you get a percentage of the dollars that you bring into the business. You can create longer-term alignment through things like that where benefits both sides. Um, so yes, I think if you are talking about vendors that you're already using or services that you're already using, finding creative ways to do things like that, uh, and discuss it makes a ton of sense. And then just think about what's valuable to them as well, where with someone like Tegas, they get the opportunity to talk to some of their customers and offer that out, which I think is an interesting thing that you know they can do. It's interesting value and it's an interesting currency to them. For someone like you, then you get to go through that experience, which is probably interesting. I mean, you could you can actually tell us whether it was or not. 
But um, yeah, I think those things extend in their forms of, you know, alternative currency versus just the dollars and the cents. And um, I'm interested in what your sense of what constitutes too many ads as it relates to what listeners will tolerate. I ask because Tim Ferriss literally has like six minutes of ads before he even starts the interview. And it just seems nothing against him. He can monetize well, but it seems a little excessive. What, how have you settled in, in terms of like, you can, of course you could just every, every podcast increase the ad load 2%, 3% and no one will, no one will notice up to a certain point when they're like, these guys are just not being authentic anymore. How, how have you balanced all that? I would say that I think we we tend to do two, max three, um, and many of our shows will only do one. So we'll always offer that opportunity for a single sponsor. That's giving up dollars. I think where you have shows where there's a lot more ad reads, um, I don't take too much issue against it. I think it they can offer maybe an, an ad-free plan um, that you can pay for. And then you start to see how many people sign up for that. I think if anything, I'll play, I'll play the the devil's advocate here. It'd be much worse if Tim was doing it every 10 minutes throughout the episode versus, you know, a bunch up front and then every 30 minutes or whatever it might be. Um, so there's different ways to view it, but I think at the end of the day, most of what we saw over the past 20 years in terms of free content, all of this stuff that's out there. If there's one thing that I've changed my mind on over the past 10 years, I used to have this view that once something is free, people will never pay for it. I think that's been debunked. Um, it used to be that only water was the good example of that when eventually someone started selling bottled water and it was this thing for free that now you got different packaging. Uh, but now we have New York Times, all of these other websites. Um, all types of subscriptions. And I think it's just a case where if you can't get the content um, besides the content won't get created unless you know it's being paid for somehow. So how people do that and maybe they can offer you several different ways to consume it. If you don't want to hear the ads, then you could pay for it in a different way. Um, but until then, I don't have too much issue with it. And I assume that ad skipping is a problem for your sponsors. Um, in terms of people just fast forwarding, is that something they bring up? How have you approached that? I mean, especially, you know, as like the ad dollars go up, I think the stakes get higher for your partners. And I would want as an advertiser to know that somebody's at least listening to it. And I guess then just sorry to compound question, but is there a way from a platform down perspective to know if people are skipping ads? There is. Yeah. So many of the platforms provide some type of data. It's usually not a full snapshot. It might just be particular players that give you the information. But yeah, you definitely have people that skip. Um, and I mean, that's going to be an issue, whether they skip or whether they tune out, um, you know, television. You think people stood up and went to the bathroom while the game was on? No, they waited for a commercial break. So it's been happening across advertising for a very long period of time. It is an issue, I would say, with most sponsors um, that we are trying to bring in. Uh, the most common thing that I hear is, "Oh, well, I don't, I don't ever listen to an ads on a podcast, so I would ever want to sponsor a podcast." And hey, that is their. <laughs> if they want to go that route, that is fine by me. Um, it is our duty to make it a worthwhile investment for our sponsors, and we've been able to do that thus far, and find different ways to 
hit the listener, whether it's from that first ad read, how you deliver that ad read in the show notes, on the website, in the newsletter, just making sure that they're seeing the name. Um, and that's when you start to get into other creative ways of packaging as well, where you know more and more shows now have something on the artwork if it's a presenting sponsor, um, just to make sure that they're getting the awareness um, because podcasting is already a tough medium in terms of attribution. I was listening to Patrick's great interview with XPO's Brad Jacobs on Spotify. And at the beginning, there was a Volkswagen ad that was inserted before the podcast started. As a content provider, how do you feel about the platforms increasing the ad load even further with uh, kind of those, uh, whatever, dynamically inserted ads? Yeah, that I don't think that should be happening because we, we actually, it's interesting to hear that. We actually work um, with Spotify and, and we have access to dynamic ad insertion, which we have turned off because we do direct sales. Um, and I don't believe they should be putting in those ads um, on their own and, and then not monetizing uh, or paying us. So uh, that's a little bit of a head scratcher, I will say. But I think that that will happen in the future where it should be some type of share similar to YouTube. And there's a case to be made that if you go in that direction, maybe you have some, you know, additional freedom in terms of who's actually advertising in your show and and being hands off. The dollars and cents from that are always much lower. Um, but, you know, it's something that we've explored and we understand the value of dynamic ad insertion and the technology and all that stuff. It just never made a ton of economical sense for us. And um, we definitely are supposed to have it turned off for a show like Invest Like the Best. So I have to uh, investigate that. Yeah. Don't tell them I told you. Because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, they host our, our podcast as well. And I don't want yeah, yeah. to well, hey, I don't, I I don't mean, want to be like know, mysteriously deleted one day. Be like, oh, what happened to Compounders? It's gone. Uh, yeah. 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 Questions. That's all. Just inquiries. Yeah. So I'd love to spend our last few minutes discussing kind of the maturation of the ad market and where we are. So, you know, I think pot, the the medium itself is getting more sophisticated. The ad platform and the ad medium is getting more sophisticated and maturing. Where do you think we are in terms of the podcast medium? Maybe you could use a baseball analogy to say like where we are in terms of this becoming a fully mature functioning with good tracking and measurement, like all the kind of things that you kind of expect to to, to see in mediums that are a little more tenured is the right word. Yeah. You know, I think we're still in the middle innings. I would say there was a big boom in the top of the lineup where a lot of people had a lot of success. And what we've seen more recently, I think is, Podcast advertising going through this un- period of uncertainty where a lot of the companies that were advertising on podcasts were venture backed and they were trying to acquire customers and they were trying to grow. And this was one of the mediums that they used, some of them to great success. But when things go south, you're looking for attribution, measurement of ROI on ad spend. You start to really zero in on numbers and it's not the best medium for that. You have to have a certain infrastructure in place to really measure the ROI of podcast ad spend. That means your salespeople need to be asking whoever the leads are where they came in from. And you might say, well, you know, that's just putting more work on the advertiser. Well, it's a 
better way to track how your capital is being allocated. And I think what you would find is a lot more of the answers would be it's coming from particular podcasts. And it was certainly the case with some of our advertisers where once they put that infrastructure in place, it revealed a very interesting pattern in terms of where a lot of the leads were coming from. So I think we're still in the early stages just in terms of like understanding the medium in that sense. And also the podcast platforms and the podcast players understanding how to drive more dollars into the ecosystem in a clean way. And I'll go back to what I said about each of these podcasts are their own economies where we have listeners. Those listeners are oftentimes the best potential sponsors. They understand the value of the podcast. Who else is listening? Who of their counterparts is listening? And many times they have products or things that they would want to advertise to that audience. And that's where we end up sourcing the most interesting sponsorship partners uh, across all of our shows. And so what that means is, okay, well, how can you facilitate that in a more clean way? You start to just bring in more opportunities to have visibility in terms of who's listening, have some type of communication back and forth. And you've started to see this with, again, Spotify rolling out some of these tools in terms of leaving comments and posting polls. But I think it can go even further than that. And I think that will be certainly a net positive to podcasters. There's questions about how Spotify would potentially be able to capture that opportunity. But I think that's beneficial. Now, if you're going to rely on Apple, forget about it. I don't think Apple has shown any indication that they are going to be supportive, nor should they have to be because it's such a you know tiny fraction of what they do. Um, so it really is dependent on Spotify to figure that out and get that right. If you want to see it advance into a more mature, more developed market in that sense. Um, and then I think in the meantime, podcasters just have to find more creative ways to package things. Um, one of the things that we like to talk about is like, you know, when you're doing a, a partnership with Tiger Woods and Nike, you know, you get the commercials, you also get Tiger showing up to an event once a year. Um, and those are things that you could do as a podcaster as well. If you work with your your um, partners is figure out more creative ways to work with them and to give them value um, until all this technology stuff gets figured out, too. Sure. And I'd assume. If as advertisers get more comfortable with the platform that would increase in theory willingness to pay and then CPMs would rise for at least podcasts that are perceived to have the right scale, right brand, right message. Is that happening it, from what you can tell? Or are we kind of like, you know, in terms of that willingness to pay at a somewhat stagnant, not necessarily ever increasing pace? Yeah, I would say the rate is stagnant. If stagnant, maybe it's even come down, I would say in terms of those numbers that I reference. Um, we do everything we possibly can to just not work with partners or portions of the ecosystem that purely view things in that way. Um, it's never been a good experience. If we can find partners where we create the infrastructure for them to be able to measure how these advertisements are performing, uh, and we price such that they are certainly getting the ROI that they expect. Uh, and we are paid what we think is a, a fair and reasonable rate on that. That is what we have been spending time doing. And yes, it's gotten more challenging for sure, uh, just given the market environment. That is 
without a doubt, uh, this year, <laughs> spending a significantly more amount of time in terms of sourcing those uh, and getting you know smaller or um, shorter term deals in terms of working those out and working out new things. But that said, I think that mindset and that approach is still the best approach that we've had. And are there data sets that you can follow? Like where where do you where does someone go to figure out whether the CPMs is medium or going up or down or sideways? Like where where is there some kind of aggregated data set that is helpful for someone in your seat? We have a special chat that is just all of the biggest podcasters in the world that just exchange the data and then we'll eventually wow. form some no. Um there are several different uh publications that put out that type of information. I would say just in terms of CPM specifically, I haven't seen one that is greatly reliable, um, but there's several different good news sources, PodTrack, Pod News, Cumulus Media, Spotify does a lot of things um, via Megaphone as well, um, Libsyn. So there, there's a few different data sources uh, and I don't want to improperly attribute uh, one particular data set to to them that I, I can't remember exactly who was releasing what, but I would say there's more and more information coming out. And then there's a lot of anecdotes that you can get just from talking to to peers in the space. And how do you assess your pricing power as a, as a platform? Is it relative to others? I mean, is that because if I'm focusing on people who are more partnership oriented, long-term focused, and not just like, you know, whatever, so focused on CPMs, you would think that you know, so given the quality of the content and the you know the it's not even then the depth of the quality content that you guys would have a fair amount of pricing power. How do you think about that? Yeah, I don't know if I would call it price pricing power in the sense that we can increase price from year to year without having any repercussions. I would say no, that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. um, but being able to price um, independently of what an industry standard would be because that industry standard is based on a very specific type of packaging. Yes, I think we have much more freedom and much more willingness to do bespoke things with us versus what they might do with other advertising partners. And because there's a track record that we can provide just in terms of um, the the other advertisers seeing the results that they want to see uh, when they do advertise on the platform. So um, yeah, I guess it's you know a, a two-part answer, but I would say we really, you know, Think about it just kind of in 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 terms of okay, we're working with this specific partner. I take a lot of the information in, you know, in terms of what other people will get, but I don't necessarily use that in our negotiations when I'm thinking about how we're pricing. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. And if you're sitting in front of an advertiser who has two buckets, right? Old media versus new media. What's your, what would be your pitch that podcasting is the new media and that someone should be willing to either allocate more dollars towards this space or in theory, pay more for the ads? What, what's the, uh, What's the the elevator pitch there? I, I don't think there's anything remotely close if you can find the right partners, particularly in podcasting. Um, and I will say this. I think podcasting, even beyond video, 
uh, beyond traditional forms of media has a power that goes beyond anyone's imagination. And I think, you know, we've seen it where partners of ours can attribute eight figures worth of reoccurring revenue to advertising with the podcast. And I think there are examples of that throughout our historical sponsors that that's happened. Uh, and if you can find the right people to work with, you can really work together over a long period of time to create tremendous amount of interesting value. And I go back to something like, think about the serial podcast and the MailChimp advertisement. Like how much value did that create? And that wasn't even too you know, personalized or anything along those lines. Um, but there are certain things where if you understand the medium and you look at some of these brands and how they've grown, take something like Athletic Greens. Uh, think about Athletic Greens is advertised, who they've advertised with um, and what that has resulted in. And that's a consumer brand. Now you start to go into you know, the business-oriented software types, um, again, B2B type products. Uh, you are, again, it's going to be harder. It's not it's not buying IBM. It's not hiring the Harvard grad. You're going to you know have a little bit more pressure on you um, if you go down this route. But if you if you do it right and you pick the right partners, speaking my own book, but I I know this, uh, it is unmatched in terms of who you can reach. And given the user behavior, which I think there's a slightly different, maybe it's even demographic or or just use case of video versus audio. Like you're not going to watch a video on your commute, but you might sit at your computer and the person who might do, you know, the one, the person who might listen to a podcast on, on their commute may also not watch a video. How do you think video and how do you think of those in terms of, are they separate channels? Are they complementary channels? How, what's been your approach there? So we we think of them as separate channels. Um, we understand and we are told frequently that we are missing the opportunity by not having video. Um, I think we are comfortable with that right now. I think video introduces an entirely different cost structure. I also think there's something to be said for creating for a specific medium. Now, that's not to say that there's not a benefit from awareness and all of that from, from putting things on video. And we've slowly just started rolling out some of our business breakdowns, conversations on YouTube without any video attached, but just to have them out there. Um, so that's something that we're aware of, but I think when we think about our audience and who they are and many of the people that we're trying to reach, uh, they are oftentimes doing other things, uh, while they're listening to us. Uh, yeah. and that is, that is key. Um, that's important. And I personally think that there is a level of intimacy with an audio recording that is completely unique from any other type of medium and even video where if somebody's watching this versus listening it on headphones, um, there's a fourth wall when you're watching something via video that you are not in the room. When you're listening via audio, you feel a little bit closer. You feel more connected. Uh, there's the parasocial relationship, which is very big. And I think that's something where it sounds all fluffy, but it is 100% real just in terms of how people connect to that. And there's something very, very unique there that has not been fully figured out, fully fleshed out uh, when it comes to to audio. And that's why I think at the end of the day, we may do stuff with other mediums in the future. We will always focus on the podcast. Audio will always be our focus. We all love the medium. We all know who listens to the medium 
We all think about what the medium provides that other mediums don't. So even if we introduce other things that will be complementary and and specific to other mediums, um, the podcast will always get the dedication from from us. Interesting. And we've talked a lot about the philosophy of what you're building and, you know, kind of the market surrounding it. I'm interested if we're having this conversation in five years, what would success look like to you on the Colossus front? To me, I think, again, I go back to the people that we attract, that we are very interested in and we learn from and we want to share what they're up to and what they're doing. And right now we have a simple business model that I personally would like to see what the limits are in terms of expanding on that and finding more ways to work with these people, whether it's the hosts, whether it's the guests, whether it's just other people that are attracted to the network in a variety of different ways. So it could be learning, teaching, investing. Um, What other things can we be doing to take advantage of the unique group of people that are gathering around the content and continue to fuel that group by putting out content, but just finding other ways to monetize on what what we're doing, what we're building and and invest behind people, invest behind ideas, invest behind things. So it's going to be this, but let's say that the advertising is a piece of it, but there's just something much bigger in terms of the um the opportunity that I think is there when it comes to the people that we're we're speaking to all the time and and if we can figure out how to to create more value and then share in that value with what we're doing, that's where I think the really, really interesting opportunity is. I'll just say simply, like I, I did not leave the world of investing just to, you know, be an ad-based platform. I think we found great partners and we've been able to do that. But the the opportunity here to me is much, much bigger. And getting to that specifically, so you have this platform. It's got, I think, a good, very, a nice brand. It's got really quality content. So that all of that people understand pretty well i think but so so what do you think from a you know the business of colossus per perspective would be underappreciated by somebody who just focuses on you know an individual pod or you know just is familiar with an individual asset yeah i think the the most interesting thing to me when i stepped into the business i think well on one hand it was just the interesting economic equation when it comes to podcasts where they're low cost but the biggest thing was who was listening and then what happens after you go on a podcast um or you host a podcast and to me i'm continuously surprised again i i bring this back to when i was writing research reports at goldman you know, I had a lot of interesting opportunities and doors were opened just from having that brand association and the, the incoming calls were very interesting. This dwarfs that by multiples, by hmm. by a significant amount, where the people that listen to the shows, even the smallest of our shows, are very, very interesting people. And they just reach out because they want to learn more and they're interested in doing stuff with us in a variety of different ways. So you just group all of that together and then you take some of the people that listen, which to me is almost the most exciting thing when you have the you know, founders and CEOs of billion dollar, hundred billion dollar plus companies that are sending messages about a random chemicals business breakdown that you do. And you're saying to yourself, wow, this is very interesting. This person is really curious and who would have guessed that they would have had an interest in, in something like this. Um, and then you just get 
some really out of left field where it's, you know, titans in these industries that are talking about, you know, great shows or just sending one off messages or getting into some type of, you know, ongoing communication. Um, a lot of that happens behind the scenes, but nothing makes me happier than when a guest goes on, has a great experience and then gets a lot of really interesting feedback after the fact and outreach after the fact, um, because that just shows that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And I'll sneak one more quick one in because you just made me think of something. Yep. I've, I've often thought that there's an opportunity to do more with guests, right? You have a guest, you have this great interview, but then there's this pattern and pace where whatever, whether it's me or Patrick or anybody, we have to have more guests and sequentially. And then all of a sudden it's like been a year and maybe there's something that you should have done with a guest. Cause it was just so powerful. Like I just think about the interview with Brad Jacobs. Like I, that was a really great interview brad's like such an interesting guy with you know so many cool ideas like how i I feel like there's a missed opportunity for for all of us to have found new ways or additional ways to have guests speak to you know our audiences how is that what what is am i is there anything to that do you think yeah well it's funny you bring up brad jacobs who is a master of this type of remaining in contact with the people around him and interesting people. So I covered his business when I was at Goldman. I was the transports analyst and nothing was more impressive than Brad's ability to connect with people that he was just interested in, checking in on them, not always doing that himself, using other people to make sure that they were aware that Brad was asking about him. Um, And that goes such a long way um, where to me, it is now very obvious why he's been able to do so much M&A, why he attracts so much talent. He is very deliberate about that. That is kind of separate, I think, from what you were describing. But I think on the guest side of things, yes, I think if you look at many of the most successful content platforms, what do they have? They have something that listeners are attracted to. It's the, okay, I'm now familiar with this personality. I want to listen to them more. And that is a whole different side of things where we can talk about the art of growing shows and some of the tactics that you can use. But I think over time, people love reoccurring guests. And if you look at a successful podcast like Bill Simmons, you barely hear any new voices. You barely hear new interviews. You don't hear the people that he used to have on. You hear the people that have been characters in his life and characters on the show over and over and over again. And it only shifted more and more in that direction over time. And I don't think it's just because it's easier to talk to those people. I think it's because the the listener base actually enjoys that. So I think there's something to be said for you know tradition. Maybe you have somebody at the year end each year and you do some type of episode. We did that recently with Demodoran. And I would love if he and Patrick did an annual episode. It would be excellent. Um, and the numbers <laughs> bear that out as well. He, he does quite well when he comes on. So um, yeah, I think there's very much something to doing more in that regard. Um, And then the third way is just like, maybe you have a community where your guests are slotted into some type of conversation after the fact. And, you know, that requires some work. So I think, you know, it's always worth thinking about, okay, I'm going to start this thing, but is it going to self-sustain on its own or do I need to be really involved? But there are definitely different ways. And I think personally, from a lot of the people that I've hosted, um, I know I can reach out to them and even have off mic chats, which are insanely valuable. And once you have a conversation like this for an hour plus, 
it's a really good starting point where there's a foundation in place. And now those conversations are much easier to have. Agreed. I mean, if there's one thing that I really appreciate about this platform is the connections you can make with people and the friendships that this, the process of doing diligence on someone and then the process of doing the interview and the side chats, like you can really establish uh, like lasting relationships, which is, I mean, you know, basically what I'm in this for. So uh, this has been incredible. This is a masterclass on everything podcast. I'm, you know, selfishly, you know, a fanboy of, of everything that you guys have done and, and learning about it is great. So thank you so much for being on Compatters. It was a pleasure. Anybody uh, that has uh, Tom Logan from Mirian on, I told you when you had him uh, on the podcast that I was a big fan of of that and that particular episode and have uh, been a listener since. So I appreciate you having me and it's always fun to discuss the, the world of podcasting. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate that.